Democrats and other stains on the good name of humanity are feeling stunned, chagrined, confused, depressed, kind of mopey, and like maybe it's just that time of the month again, because of the results of a new poll on their chances in the upcoming midterms. The poll, released by the same company that published the Book of Revelation, shows that Joe Biden's approval rating has fallen to the level of the dream sequence in Vertigo, where Jimmy Stewart is just this gigantic head with a horrified face and then plummets off the top of the mission tower, but keeps plummeting into infinite nothingness before sitting up in bed and screaming, oh my God, I'm the worst president in the history of the country, and everyone knows it, even the birds are crapping on me. It's possible I'm not remembering that sequence exactly right. It's sort of gotten confused in my brain with Joe Biden's poll numbers. The new poll shows that in a generic race between Democrats and an unnamed Republican, the Democrats will lose both houses of Congress, even if it turns out the Republican is actually just a stink bug or Mitt Romney or something else of that nature. While 23% of the country says they will continue to vote Democrat because they haven't got the faintest idea of what's going on, 52% of Americans say, please let the asteroid of death destroy the Earth before this administration goes on for even one more day, and 17% of the country are actually gathered outside the Capitol carrying pitchforks and giving performative readings of the Madame Defarge scenes from Tale of Two Cities. Democrat concret. Democrat Congressional Campaign Committee Chairman John Doe says the poll does not concern him at all. In an interview from an unknown location given with an electronically modified voice, a pixelated face, and a fake name, John Doe told his mother, quote, Democrats have developed a great platform of teaching children racism while we groom them for sexual abuse, then having the FBI investigate their parents as terrorists whenever they protest. So we know we've secured the racist child molester vote, plus the vote of any federal agent who spends his spare time goose-stepping back and forth in front of his bathroom mirror while singing Tomorrow Belongs to Me. That, and the support of the staff of Twitter, should give us a tremendous advantage when it comes time for us to disguise ourselves and mingle with a small crowd in order to escape the country." Unquote. On the new CNN Plus political talk show called The Empty Room Where No One Is Listening to Us, commentator Shapely Nudnik says she thinks the Democrat problem is mostly one of messaging. Speaking over Chris Wallace's anguished cries of what was I thinking, Nudnik said, quote, I think Democrats simply need to go out there and explain that the reason people can't afford to drive their cars is because Vladimir Putin forced us to spend $2 trillion on COVID relief after he closed our economy for no good reason. Thank heavens, Joe Biden stood up to Putin before Putin passed that stupid Build Back Better plan, which really would have destroyed us completely. I think Americans have to be made to understand how much money they can save by not eating and killing their dogs. But who cares what I think, since we're in an empty room and no one's listening to us?" Unquote. Republicans say they are already making plans for after the election, and they hope that when they hold majorities in both houses of Congress, they'll be able to accomplish nothing, waste time with useless investigations, and then go on Fox News to talk about how they need to win the White House so they'll be able to accomplish nothing, waste time with useless investigations, and go on Fox News. Donald Trump, meanwhile, says he will not rest until every single American believes the last election was stolen, whereupon he'll tear off his mask and reveal he's really Stacey Abrams, who will then tear off her mask to reveal she's really Donald Trump, and so on, ad infinitum, until a bird craps on everybody. The new, the new poll further shows that 73% of Americans are planning to vote for the bird. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. 
little hunky dunky, life is tickety boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky dunky doo. Ship shaped, tipsy topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray! It makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray! Oh, hooray, hurrah! All right, we are back, laughing our way through the fall of the republic. Today, we're going to talk about you know you know how Vladimir Lenin used to call American communists useful idiots. Today, we're going to talk about useless idiots, from the FBI to Fauci to the press, entertainers. If I leave any idiots out, you are welcome to just throw your own idiot in. Uh, today is, of course, a Good Friday, leading up to Easter, and all Christians know the meaning of Easter, which is that I will no longer be plugging my book, The Truth and Beauty. Uh, this is the last time I'm going to put it up there before you. Uh, you know, I, I told you it would be a miracle, a genuine miracle, actually, if we got it into the top 10. We got it up to number 48 on uh, Amazon, which is a minor miracle. We don't have to rewrite the Bible, but that's still amazing. If there's anyone out there left who has not bought it, go buy it. You will like it. I will read you one last—this is the end, so I'm going to tell you. I'm going to read you one last review. This is the last one that came in on Amazon. It said—or that I saw. It said, Clavin co-wrote this book with God. And I should mention that God has disavowed any uh, knowledge of that collaboration, but it says— Clavin co-wrote this book with God. His literary, theological, and philosophical vision is as lucid as that of Milton, yet as accessible and clear-eyed as the apologetics of C.S. Lewis. What I found marvelous is how he positively dances over incredibly deep theological water to deliver a story, a worldview, a philosophy, and a notion of art, and for that matter, reality, in merely 233 pages. It took me a long time to write that review. No, I didn't really write, rewrite. I didn't really write the review, but Please go on and buy it. We've got this one last chance. I'm plugging it for you. If you move it up into the top 10, uh, again, they will rewrite the Bible to add this miracle. But even so, you will enjoy the book. So please uh, go and pick it up. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. Give us a five-star review. That is always tremendously helpful. And, of course, subscribe to my personal YouTube uh, channel where we have special exclusive con content, uh, including this week we're going to— you will get to see me playing Elden Ring. You know, they had me playing uh, Super Mario Kart with the guys, but it was really unfair because they told me I was number four and I was number three and I was driving the wrong car for the first five minutes. I could have beaten all those guys. And then they threw me out and let Tim Pool come in instead. So it wasn't really fair, but you can watch me play Elden Ring. Uh, I, I don't know when they'll release that, but if you press that little bell on the YouTube uh, button, you'll just hear a ringing in your ear and that'll uh, continue well into your 50s. Um, also, uh, if you send us a comment, uh, we will read that comment on the air, assuming it is sufficiently uh, evil and, uh, and nasty. Uh, here is somebody, from Jim Bozo, saying, Oh, Clavin, tarnished with maiden most worthy, take the throne to become Elden Lord and deny the liberal flame of frenzy. So people are looking forward to watching me play Elden Ring. I don't think I made as much of a fool of myself as I could have. With anything you do in life, there's one way to do it, and then there's a smarter way to do it. You might already be investing in cryptocurrency, but did you know you can trade Bitcoin, Ethereum, and over 80 other cryptocurrencies in a tax-advantaged IRA? With an Alto Crypto IRA, you can trade crypto like Bitcoin and avoid or defer the taxes. 
Get into investing in crypto and do it in a tax-advantaged retirement account. Alto's Crypto IRA is the easy way to get crypto into an IRA. Trade all you want without the tax headache. Create an account in just a few minutes and invest with as little as 10 bucks with no setup charges. Get secure trading 24-7 through Alto's integration with Coinbase. There are 80-plus coins available, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Cardano. Plus, there are multiple ways to fund your account. Open an Alto Crypto IRA account with as little as 10 bucks. Just go to altoira.com slash Andrew. That's A-L-T-O-I-R-A dot com slash Andrew. Start investing in cryptocurrency today. Go to altoira.com slash Andrew. It's also uh, Passover, I should mention. So happy Passover uh, to, you know, Shapiro's listeners. Uh, I was talking to Shapiro backstage, at backstage, which we did this week. And I was talk- telling him that I had to um, research Ed Gein for something I'm writing. Now, if you don't know who Ed Gein is, he is one of the most horrific serial killers in American history. He's the guy on whom they based the movie Psycho and uh, uh, Silence of the Lambs was also based on Ed Gein. He really inspired almost the entire uh, slasher genre. And so I'm listening to this book and it's awful. I hate listening to stuff like this. It's just so gory. And so it was was literally uh, uh, turning my stomach. It was actually making me nauseous. It was so horrible. And, uh, but I had to research it for work. And I went to do Tim Pool's uh, terrific podcast, and and Tim has this studio out in the middle of nowhere. I won't give his location, but it's out. It's just out in the middle of nowhere. So I had to drive like an hour and a half to get there at night. And I thought, well, this will be a good time. I can listen to this book, maybe get through it, because I just can't stand listening to this book about Ed Gein. And so I got there. I did the podcast. We had a great time, but it was almost midnight. It was like after eleven when I left, and I get in the car, and I'm just on this dark, lonely road. And I turn on the story of Ed Gein, and I think, no, no, because the, it, the place out there looked like the, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was also inspired by Ed Gein, and it, it really was. And so I'm out there, and I thought, no, I'm not listening to this. And I was telling Shapiro, I turned it off, and I'm in my wife's car. I'm fiddling around trying to figure out how to turn on the radio, and I finally find the button for the radio. I turned it on, and it's Shapiro. And I told Shapiro that I can now vouch for the fact that he is actually more fun to listen to than a book about Ed Gein. So that's my my endorsement, my blurb for Shapiro. It's more fun to listen to him than a serial killer. But if, if you are like my, if you're a lady like my wife, you're probably thinking to yourself what my wife always says to me, why are you listening to that stuff? And the reason is, it's my job, and I believe in doing my job. You know, I have had a lot of jobs. When you're a writer, you have to support yourself any way that you can. And I've, I've been a gas jockey back in the days when somebody actually came out and pumped your gas and wiped your windshield. I was that guy. I was a cab driver. I was a warehouse guy. Uh, I did, worked on a construction site. I was a secretary for a while, security guard. Uh, later, I became a, I did, I was a disc jockey and a reporter and a news writer. And even as a young man, when I was fairly insane, Um, I developed an idea about work that has served me really well. And that idea was that whatever job I was doing, that job was not going to define me. I was going to define that job. If I put my hands on something to do something, I was going to do it excellently. I was going to do it to the best of my ability. I was not going to say to myself, oh, you know, I'm not really a security guard. I'm really a writer. You know, I'm a writer. I just have to do this security guard work. I said, no, you know, if I'm a security guard, I'm going to be the best security guard I can be. Now, at the Daily Wire, we have security guards way, way better than I was really well-trained, but I was the best security guard I could be, and I took my job seriously. And this really served me well. It stuck with me 
to today when I feel the same way about anything I do, about, you know, some, some of the things I have to do for my work are chores, like doing outlining, which is something I don't like, but I do it with intensity and I do it with all the excellence I know. And it also means that when I write, for instance, a novel, I don't let the story become political or religious ranting or propaganda. I tell the story. I do my job. My job is to tell the story. If there's a character who is who believes, for instance, that communism is great, I let that character have full life. I breathe full life into him because that is my job. I do my job above and beyond my own personal opinions and my own personal desires. I put the job above me because that is what I'm here to do. This is... In my life, okay, I hope that produces good writing. I hope it produces good work. But it can become incredibly important in moments of surprise, you know. I mean, when a, a police officer does his job, even if he hates the guy he has to be save and he likes the guy he has to arrest, when he does his job right, he is doing something incredibly important. We all remember uh, 2009, that U.S. Airways flight that had to, you know, uh, be Dutch. Uh, Chelsea Sullenberger, Sully they called him, was the pilot, and he got he was hit by birds and he lost both his engines at the lowest level, the lowest altitude of, that anyone had ever lost power, had to land in the Hudson River. He did his job. He actually went out there and landed the plane on the Hudson River. And I, I flew small planes. I mean, I flew tiny planes. It is really hard to land on anything but a flat runway and to land on water is really difficult. He saved every life. He and his staff and all the emergency workers, they did their jobs and it becomes an enormous magical thing to put your own feelings aside and your own interests aside and do the work that God has given you to do is a magical thing and sometimes a heroic thing and always an important thing. And more than anything, right this minute, what characterizes America is that we are living in a country where a certain group of people you can call them elites or call them the powerful or just call them stupid and corrupt sons of bitches, but they simply are not doing their jobs. And I will show you what I mean. Life can be complicated, but not everything has to be complicated. Getting your family insured doesn't have to be. Fabric has moved life insurance all online. So getting a policy that's right for your family isn't complicated at all. Fabric was built specifically for parents to help you manage your family's financial future like a parenting pro, stress-free. Fabric's new lower prices mean significant savings over other providers with great policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Everything is on your schedule with Fabric because it's all online. Less than 10 minutes to apply and you could be offered coverage instantly with no health exam required. With Fabric's online hub, it's easy to track your family finances all in one place, get affordable life insurance, set up your kid's college savings plan, and even establish a rainy day savings fund. Planning for the future has never been easier. There's no risk to apply today. Fabric has a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. Protect your family with term life insurance now in just 10 minutes. Apply today at meetfabric.com slash Clavin. That's meet, M-E-E-T, Fabric.com slash Claven to start protecting your family today. Meet Fabric.com slash Claven. Fabric insurance agency policies issued by Vantis Life, not available in New York and Montana. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. You say, I spelled meat, but how do you spell Claven? <laughs> K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no easy so when I talk about People not doing their jobs. I could start almost anywhere, uh, but let's start with law enforcement. You saw, I'm sure, the subway shooting 
in New York, uh, in a neighborhood that I know quite well. Guy gets, this is a black supremacist, essentially. He gets on uh, the subway. He's got a gas mask on. He releases a smoke bomb and opens fire. And it's an Easter miracle that uh, no one was killed. But, you know, he's on video and on social media talking about how he hates white people, he hates homeless people, he hates the subways, he's going to shoot someone. And you wonder, you know, they say that the FBI had him like on there, were watching him, but you kind of wonder whether they were paying too much attention to these, this, I think, fabricated threat from right-wing militia. They're always saying, you know, oh, the right-wing is, oh, this is the most dangerous thing in the country. Whereas when they call a meeting of these extreme right-wingers, and they're out there, and they're bad people, there's no question about that. But when when they call a meeting, they can't even get a quorum going. So they had this week, you know, this ridiculous plot to kidnap Uber uh, Stormfuhrer Gretchen von Whitmer, uh, the governor of Michigan, right? And they gets thrown out of court. Oh, well, he, they get acquitted. These two guys get acquitted uh, because, because the feds were doing all of the plotting. They kept, you know, engaging these guys in conversation about how they were going to, uh, you know, kidnap uh, Whitmer and they were going to stage a revolution or whatever. But of course, whenever they had to do it, it was like, yeah, it's time for a beer, you know? And it was the FBI guys going, these guys are driving us crazy. They don't want to kidnap the governor. And ultimately, they were uh, they were acquitted as they should be. They was same with one of the uh, January six protesters who was uh, let off because he was acquitted because they had video of the police letting him into the Capitol. And there are there's evidence now. Of course, I'm not saying it was a false flag. There were people, idiots there who actually did storm the Capitol. But there was a lot of encouragement from people who were planted among them, which is going to make it hard for them to hold trial. You know, they keep talking about 200 people have been convicted, but those people weren't put on trial. They all made a plea deal because when the federal government comes after you, it's very hard not to make a plea deal. They come to you and say, we are going to put you away for 117 years, or you can plead guilty and maybe we'll put you away for a year. It's it's hard not to take that deal. You're risking everything because when you get convicted in federal court, you go away. I mean, the thing is, the FBI, when they do this, they are not doing their job. They are serving political purposes. They're putting political... And by the way, I'm not talking about the agents all the time. A lot of these guys are great agents doing their job, but they have to go where their bosses tell them. Their bosses are serving a Democrat Party narrative, a big government narrative, a, a big dark, deep state narrative that the big threat to this country is from right-wingers, and it simply is not. And, you know, just to throw in this other story, I'll cover this story more because it's really interesting. Secret Service guys were being corrupted. <laughs> they were being hoodwinked by two men impersonating federal agents and plying them with gifts, giving them gifts and telling congressional committees and allies that the severity, uh, you know, of the breach has been overblown. But it's, it's ridiculous. This whole thing, they were kind of were corrupting these Secret Service agents and they have names. They keep saying they were Pakistani or something, but they have names that make me think that they were Iranian while our government is negotiating with Iran on this stupid nuclear deal. So that's law enforcement. And then there's COVID. There's a really interesting study that came out um, from the University of Chicago. And instead of just studying how many people went to the hospital, how many people died, it studied all of the effects of the lockdowns, of employment, of the uh, fact that children weren't going to school. And it just put all these effects together and ranked these states where they came out on the COVID uh, outcomes, but also on other outcomes. And it found that, for instance, Florida was 28th in mortality in the middle of the pack and about the same as California, right? So Ron DeSantis, who they call, what do they call him, Ron De De Death Sentence? Ron Death Sentence, that's what they call him. Um, 
Instead, no, he did just as well as California where they were brutalized everybody with their lockdowns. They still are, but but it, he, Florida did average on mortality, but it did far better in protecting its citizens from severe economic harm and its children from lost schooling. So when you put everything together, you find out that the, the red states and the people who didn't lock down, did, most of them did far better than the blue states that did lock all this stuff down. And the thing is, the people know this. The, the people in power know that the things they did didn't help didn't change, and sometimes made things worse. We know this. We know this because when there were Trump rallies and when there were anti-lockdown rallies, everybody went on the news and all the government people saying, oh, this is, these are super spreaders. This is a super spreader. Whereas when there were Black Lives Matter riots and killings and burning down the city, these mostly peaceful riots they had, suddenly they said, no, 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 this, is, this won't spread anything. This is fine. This is fine. And they, we know because they don't wear masks. They tell us to wear masks and they don't wear masks. You know, they just extended the mask mandate on planes. My son, Spencer Clavin, no relation, uh, says, if you want to know what it'll be like when the federal government is running everything, get on a plane, because planes are now the lousy service, bad food, uh, you know, and you have to wear these horribly uncomfortable masks. And Jen Psaki said, oh, you know, with the mask, we are just, we're just following the science, the science. Here's what she told the reporter. Why two weeks? Uh, sure. What difference can be made in, in such a short amount of time? Sure. Well, this um, assessment was made. I know there was a statement that was put out um, by the CDC and certainly would point to that. But as they're continuing to monitor the spread of, uh, of BA2, uh, the BA2 subvariant, which now makes up more than 85 percent of U.S. cases, what they're looking at is that since early April, there's been an increases in the seven-day moving average of the cases in the United States. So what they're trying to do is give a little bit more time to assess its potential impact, the rise of the cases have on severe disease, including hospitalizations and deaths, and the healthcare system capacity, and their assessment from a medical standpoint, a data, data gathering standpoint, is that two weeks would give them some additional time to do that. Now, at the end of that two weeks, they can determine what's next after that, but, um, but that is a, that assessment they made so that they could gather more data of the rise of the subvariant. So then she was asked, you know, Katanji Brown Jackson was sworn in, Supreme Court Justice, why wasn't Kamala Harris wearing a mask during the ceremony? You said on Friday that um, the vice president was masked indoors all day, but the White House tweeted a video showing her standing over the president without a mask on. Can you explain what happened there? Well, I would say that the vice president and the president and all of us abide by what the CDC protocols are. It was an emotional day. It was a historic day. And there were moments when she was not wearing a mask inside, including in a photo, but she was wearing it 99.9% .9 of the time. So if it's a historic day and an emotional day, then the masks don't work. See, then the masks suddenly, that the historic emotion uh, just goes, permeates the masks and they become, so you might as well just take them off. It's all nonsense. It's all nonsense. And they know it's nonsense. And look, I'm not saying that in a locked door, a locked room study or something like this, I'm not saying that uh, the masks don't do anything when they study it like that. But in fact, in fact, it's not doing what it's supposed to do. And we know, so, so they're not doing their jobs. They don't wear the mask when they go out. They, don't, they keep making excuses for it. Fauci was talking about lockdowns in China. And here's, here's what he, he just admitted it on air. China has, has a number of problems, two of which are that their complete lockdown which was their approach, a strictest lockdown that you'd never be able to implement. 
in the United States. Although that prevents the spread of infection, and remember early on, they were saying, and I think accurately, that they were doing better than almost anybody else. But lockdown has its consequences. You use lockdowns to get people vaccinated so that when you open up, you won't have a surge of infections because you're dealing with an immunologically naive population to the virus because they've not really been exposed because of the lockdown. So in other words, it's a coercive technique. Lockdowns are a coercive technique to get you to get vaccinated. That's not doing your job. This guy's job is to tell people the facts so that people in a free country can make their own decisions. That's his job. So everything they do, they know that they're not doing their job. They know that the stuff they're pushing on you is meaningless because they're not following it. Uh, They're not only not following it, they make excuses for not following it when it serves their political purposes. The guy who's telling the truth... Ron DeSantis. I mean, the guy is the guy is a boss, and he's run his state. He has gotten his state uh, to do very well in terms of to do middling well in terms of the mortality from the disease, but to do extremely well in terms of all the other damaging things that were not because of the disease, but because of government action. And he points out this same the same fact that it's two things: they're not doing their job because their job is to inform us of what. Uh, the facts are so we can make decisions for ourselves. That's their actual job. And they know they're not doing their job. They know what they're, they're doing is garbage. Here's DeSantis. You look over the last two years, there is a cottage industry that was developed of lockdown politicians and media personalities who would either impose or support lockdown policies in their jurisdictions or advocated on their TV shows, criticize Florida mercilessly, and then the first chance they get to get out from under the yoke of those bad policies, you see them in Miami or Palm Beach or all these other places. And if I had a dollar for every lockdown politician that escaped their own policies to come to our free state, I would be set for life. That's just the fact. Now, some people will say, oh, they're, they're hypocrites, all this stuff. Yeah, they are, but that's not the issue. The issue is, is if they thought their policies really were necessary and these mitigations really were effective, they would be abiding by it. They're not abiding by it because they know it's all about politics and control. All right, so he says it's about politics and control, but the, but the point remains the same. That, that they are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're not doing effect, effective work. They're not going to work every day like I go to work, like you go to work every day and saying, I got to do my job with excellence. They are just lying and doing this. And they know it. And they know it. So we know there's something else that must be happening. There must be something else on their minds. Let's move on to our friends in the press. Katandri Brown-Jackson is sworn in. Here's how it was covered by our press. This is from our friends at uh, Grabian. The court looks more like America today. Let me just go ahead and speak for all black women in America today, saying we are extremely proud. To all the colored girls who considered shaping justice when this system was not enough, this moment is ours. It's historical, (laughs) monumental, and we're saying it, but in some ways you're like, it's It's 22. How do we not have a black woman on this court already? And now this was a step towards the court actually looking like a reflection of the country it oversees. It is a powerful symbol to look up on that court and see somebody that looks like you. Finally, there'll be people going in front of the, the court looking like me, 
and seeing someone that looks like them. The president made note of the sunshine today that is pouring down on the White House, saying that the sun is shining for black women and women of color. To see the president up there standing next to these two remarkable black women, both the first in their roles, it is an image that will be uh, hard for many to forget. Not your job. It is not your job to sell the president, to sell the Supreme Court justice. She may be crap on the court. We don't know yet. I think she's going to be very, very bad, but we know she's going to have a point of view. The color of her skin doesn't matter a damn to me. There's already a black judge on the uh, court, but he doesn't count because he doesn't agree with them. They are, they are ju- I'm just... Lay aside the bias, lay aside the corruption, lay aside the intellectual corruption. They're just not doing what they're paid to do, what we turn them on to hear, which is the news. The facts will decide, as as Fox News always says, they should report, we should decide. Meanwhile, meanwhile, of course, Hunter Biden, here's, here's a story from the country's paper of record, the New York Post. Hunter Biden's access to lucrative financial opportunities came with expectations, including kicking back as much as 50% of his earnings to his father, text messages on his old laptop show. This is uh, this story has been around, but this, they're just re-reporting it. Here's a uh, Hunter Biden uh, communication. He says, I hope you all can do what I did and pay for everything for this entire family for 30 years. It's really hard, but don't worry. Unlike Pop, I won't make you give me half your salary. Pop is Joe Biden. The laptop, infamous infamously abandoned a Delaware repair shop, does not contain any direct evidence of such money transfers, but does show that Hunter was routinely on the hook for his father's household expenses while Joe Biden was vice president. The expenses are spelled out in an email to Hunter from business partner Eric Schwerin from June 5th, 2010, entitled JRB Bills. Joe Biden Bills, they concern the upkeep of Joe Biden's palatial lakefront home in the wealthy Greenville enclave of Wilmington, Delaware, JBR are President Biden's initials. So it goes on just to talk about the fact that Hunter Biden is <laughs> paying this stuff with his influence peddling money, his ill-gotten gains. So they're not doing their job. They're, they're too busy telling us what we should feel, what we should think, that we should feel and think like them, who basically are the representatives of big corporations. And I'll get to that in just a second. Meanwhile, they ask Brian Stelter at that Chicago, U of Chicago thing on disinformation. Uh, they ask him about all the stuff that uh, CNN covers up. This is just a college kid asking Stelter a question. You've all spoken extensively about Fox News being a purveyor of uh, disinformation, uh, but CNN is right up there with them. They push the Russian collusion hoax. They push the Jesse Smollett hoax. They smeared Justice Kavanaugh as a rapist, and they also smeared Nick Sandman as a white supremacist. And yes, they dismissed the Hunter Biden laptop affair as pure Russian disinformation. Uh, With mainstream corporate journalists becoming little more than uh, apologists and cheerleaders for the regime, is it time to finally declare that the, uh, the canon of journalistic ethics is dead or no longer operative? I think you're describing a different channel than the one that I watch. Uh, But I understand that that is a popular right-wing narrative about CNN. And with regards to the regime, I think you mean the President Biden. The last time I spoke with a Biden aide, we yelled at each other. So that's the reality of the news business that people don't see, that people don't hear. They imagine that it's a a situation that simply is not. But I think your question, it speaks to the failure of journalism to show our work and show the reality of how our profession operates. We have a lot of work to do, I think. He just, he doesn't respond at all to the question. We're such nice people. And sometimes we get in arguments with Joe Biden's, you know, 
they hide the news. They hide the news. And Stelter knows. He knows. This is the thing. They're not doing their job. They know they're not doing their job. But they think something is more important than doing their job. Another, uh, Just moving on to another place, these teachers that I've been ranting about now for two weeks, uh, trying to teach sex to our kids, uh, their, their particular sexual orientation to little kids. Here's a kindergarten teacher explaining his sad life <laughs> to these little children. I'm a man. But when I was a baby, the doctors told my parents I was a girl. And so my parents gave me a name that girls typically have and bought me clothes that girls typically wear. Um, and until I was 18 years old, everyone thought I was a girl. And this was super, super uncomfortable for me because I knew that wasn't right. Um, the way I like to describe it is like wearing a super itchy sweater. Um, the longer you wear it, the itchier it gets. And the only way to make the itching stop is to have everyone see and know the person that you really are. So, so that's from Libs of TikTok, which was knocked off Twitter because Twitter isn't doing its job, which is allowing Americans to talk to one another. That's why they're so panicked that Elon Musk, who knows something about doing his job, who does do his job, he wants to take over Twitter and make it a bastion of free speech. And they're absolutely terrified. But meanwhile, that guy is telling that to kindergartens. Meanwhile, I went back to a pre-COVID study of how America is doing uh, in terms of math ability, uh, science literacy, and reading skills, okay? And we are really way down there. We, the U.S. is 38th out of 71 countries, 38th out of 71 countries. He's not doing his job. He's too busy telling these people about the fact that a doctor somehow, somehow thought he might be a girl. I, I, I wonder why the doctor thought that. Um, he's explaining that he's not teaching them to read. He's not teaching them science. He's not teaching them math. He's not teaching them the things that he's there for. The purpose of his paycheck, the reason he is there, all of these guys. And, you know, it, it continues into all of Hollywood. And again, again, I have to emphasize, it's not that they believe what they're saying. Warner Brothers just censored some gay language from a release of the new Dumbledore movie in China. It's not like they have principles about LGBTQ rights. It is not that. What are they doing? Why? And now they're, and they're stock is going down. Disney's stock is going down. People are saying, we don't want to be part of Disney's agenda. This is all, all of it is about something other than uh, virtue. It's about something other than politics. It is it's cynical. First of all, our, because of civil rights laws, our companies have been put in the position where if they even look bigoted against any kind of minority group, whether it's sex, sexually or in terms of race, if they look, they can be sued. And they can be really deeply penalized. So it is important to them. You ask, well, why don't they serve the conservatives who go want to go see Disney? Why, why don't they con Disney movies? Why don't they serve the conservatives who want to watch late night comedy and don't want to be insulted? And the reason is they can get sued for even looking as if they were violating civil rights law. Okay, but there's also, of course, the the virtue signaling. You know, this is because the churches aren't doing their job because the churches are trying to make the world a better place instead of teaching you about sin and redemption so that you understand that there is no way for you to be virtuous. You know, the right wing is on the rise. The right wing is on the rise in Europe. We just saw Marine Le Pen have a very good showing against Macron. Uh, Victor Orban was... Uh, uh, one by a large margin in Hungary. The right is rising here too. I mean, when we look at the polls and they show what's, what's coming down the pike, hopefully, if we don't blow it, which we often do. But there is a real question about which right is rising. In Europe, we have this strongman right. And these are the people who are 
uh, like Marine Le Pen kind of likes Vladimir Putin because she thinks he's a strong man. He's for Christianity. I mean, this is a guy who's bombing maternity hospitals in uh, in Ukraine, a Christian country. This is not a bastion of Christianity. But in the in America, we have a different conservatism. We have a conservatism that is trying to conserve the Constitution. That's our job. That's what we have to do. The, the culture of freedom that keeps that Constitution alive, the belief in free speech, the belief in a moral order that we have to live in our lives, rebuilding that culture is our job. We can't do that with strongmen. We can't even do it from the top down. We were talking about that a little bit on backstage. We can't do it from the top down because it's a contradiction in terms. You can't force people to be free. You can't force people to be moral and keep them free. And yet you need a moral and ultimately religious population to be free. So the job that's facing us is a complicated one. It's a long one. It's a difficult one. It's something that we have to do over time, just like this postmodern left took our institutions apart over time. These guys teaching our children sexual dysfunction, uh, these people, these police officers trying to get the right to do things they don't want to do while letting black supremacists cause, uh, you know, commit terrorist attacks. All of these things that are happening, they happened over time and we have to take them back over time and we have to do them on the local level. I, I think, you know, they talk about the Benedictine option. I think it's more than that. It's federalism. It's keeping our states. It's fighting for our state's rights to create a, a state in which people want to live because of its moral culture. That's our job. We have to start to do it. We have to take it in hand and we have to put it ahead of what we like and what we think is the right thing in any given moment and make sure that we do this over time because if we don't do our jobs, no one is gonna do their job. So they keep telling us inflation is transitory. Unfortunately, so is life. <laughs> I don't know how long prices are gonna keep going up, but one place you're seeing them really going up is the grocery store. Prices for beef are only going to get higher as summer approaches, and your favorite cuts will be harder to find. So lock in your price and your supply with Good Ranchers right now. Once you subscribe, your price never goes up, making Good Ranchers the best way to inflation-proof your meals. Shop Good Ranchers for all your beef, chicken, and seafood needs. Good Ranchers only sells 100% American meat from local farms and ranches. They have signature steak burgers and Wagyu burgers that are packed full of flavor. Their pre-trimmed and pre-marinated chicken breasts are absolutely delicious and so easy to prepare. Plus, their packaging makes it easy to cook what you want and save the rest, which keeps you from wasting anything. Get your 30 buck discount on prime steaks and better than organic chicken today. Go to GoodRanchers.com slash to save on the quality you've been looking for. Good Ranchers takes the guesswork out of the grocery store by sourcing everything from local farms and shipping to your door. Use my code Claven and enjoy your box of 100% American meat and your $30 savings. Order now to combat inflation with Good Ranchers. American meat delivered if you know how to spell Claven. There's no E in Claven. I just make it look this incredibly easy. So uh, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson was confirmed by the Senate. And just for a little bit of comic relief, I have to play Cory Booker's reaction to this. Just finished the vote. Uh, Katanji Brown Jackson has now been confirmed by the Senate to be a justice on the Supreme Court. And I think there are a lot of people who can appreciate this, that there is a lot of hurt in this world. There's a lot of private pain and personal injury. And we live in a nation with acres of ground that's been watered with tears and 
sadness, but today is a mountain of joy. Today is a day for celebration. Today I rejoice. I, I cry tears of joy and I just want to thank God and thank this extraordinary woman for persevering through all of life's challenges, for overcoming all of life's obstacles and now rising and knowing as when I talk to her, she knows that we as a nation rise, rise with her. So, so at least Cory Booker is doing his job, which is amusing me with his buffoonery. Uh, to talk about this development on the court, this appointment, this confirmation of a Supreme Court justice who has not said that she would stand up uh, to keep the court's integrity and keep it from being expanded, uh, packed, basically, with more than nine justices. Uh, Judge Paul Summers is a former Tennessee attorney general. He is chair of the Keep Nine Coalition to preserve an independent U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, he's also been elected district attorney, appellate court judge, and senior judge. Judge, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, this Keep Nine movement, I mean, we now have a justice who has literally refused to say that she would oppose court packing. It does seem to be a, a major movement on the left. What What is the Keep Nine movement? How is that working? The Keep Nine movement is to instill a, 20, a, a, a 28th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. It would be the shortest amendment. It is expressed as follows. The Supreme Court of the United States shall be composed of nine justices. A lot of people don't realize it, but our Constitution is silent on the number of justices. For the last 153 years, we've had nine justices on the Supreme Court. It has worked quintessentially well. Uh, the last time the court was tried to be expanded was in 1937. FDR was in power. The Democrats were in power. He tried to increase the number of justices on the Supreme Court and failed miserably. Our constitutional amendment would be a firewall against what is termed court packing, that is increasing or decreasing the number of justices so that you can get decisions that are politically popular for your particular party in power. If we do that with one party, and what's going to happen 10 years from now when the other party's in power, they're going to increase the court. The next thing you know, some grandchild will ask his or her grandfather on Thanksgiving Day, Granddaddy, why do we have 31 members on the United States Supreme Court? <laughs> you know, your website says that Keep Nine is a bipartisan effort. And it does look to me as if the left is largely responsible, not entirely, but largely responsible for the politicization of the court, uh, the borking that they do to candidates that they, they did uh, again to Kavanaugh. Is, is Keep Nine actually bipartisan? I mean, do you have Democrats in your group? It actually is. About two, over two years ago, 15 former attorneys general, all of whom had practiced before or represented their respective states before the United States Supreme Court, got together and proposed the Keep Nine Constitutional Amendment, the amendment that we're talking about today. Of those, eight were Democrats and seven were Republicans. They understood how important it was to maintain the Supreme Court as an independent branch of government, uh, maintaining the rule of law, and most importantly, the Supreme Court's function is to be a checks and balances on 
abuse of power by the other two branches. Remember, our forefathers not only were smart, they were clairvoyant. They saw into the future. They created two extremely political branches of government. As soon as somebody in Congress is elected, the first thing that she thinks about is getting reelected. Same thing with the same thing with the senators every six years, same thing with the president. However, the Supreme Court, although political to get confirmed and by the by the Senate, once you are confirmed, you have a lifetime appointment. And your job is not to be a representative of the people, but to be an interpreter of the Constitution. That's just that simple. We need an independent court system, whether it's a Democrat or whether it's a Republican system. We need an independent system, and that's why we're pushing the Keep Nine constitutional amendment. You know, it's it's so hard to get a, an amendment to the Constitution passed. It seems to me it's gotten harder and harder over the years. Do you have? Do you expect to succeed, or are you just trying to spread the word? We expect to succeed. Every journey starts with its first step, as you well know. Uh, we celebrated about a year and a half ago. We celebrated the 100th anniversary on the women's right to vote. Remember that? Yep. That took that took a long time to get ratified. It should have been ratified before it did, but it took a long time. But we fully expect, and I, I really, my prediction is this, that it's true. The Democrats are hard to get to, to become embraced with the Keep Nine Amendment. But I think after November of this year, I think that's going to change a considerable amount because they're going to realize that, you know, they are going to realize that if, if, the, if the Democrats don't come on board, the Republicans might want to pack the court. Republicans have just been as guilty of, as Democrats in packing the court. Let's keep it the same. Let's keep it like it's been for 65.6% of our constitutional republic. Do you think you mentioned the fact that this is a lifetime appointment? Do you think that that's something that should change? I mean, when when a bad judge is in there, do you think there should be some means of removing them or just the 10 year appointment or something like that? That would have to be a constitutional amendment, in my opinion, as well. Uh, uh, we're focused solely on those, thir those that 13 word amendment, trying trying to crystallize what most people think is already in the Constitution, but it's not. Uh, as a matter of fact, a lot of lawyers don't even know that it's not in the Constitution. Mm. But we are trying to promote this keep nine constitutional amendment above and beyond everything else because we want to maintain the independence of the judiciary. That's our crown jewel in our democratic republic. If we don't have if we don't have an independent judiciary, then we've lost it all, folks. Well, Judge Paul Summers, uh, thank you very much for coming on. Where can people find the Keep Nine Coalition? I appreciate your asking. We've got a website, www.keepnine.org. We've also got a telephone number, 202-255-5000. Call us. We want to help. We, we're, we're doing this on a grassroots effort. Nobody's getting paid anything. We want to do this because it's the right thing to do. Judge Summers, thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I know you want to protect your home because you've got that ring uh, doorbell where you can talk to anybody who comes to your door on your phone no matter where you are, but do you have a ring alarm? And 
have you gone Ring Alarm Pro? Because Ring Alarm is an award-winning home security system with available professional monitoring when you subscribe. But Ring Alarm Pro is a next-level security system. CNET calls Ring Alarm Pro a giant leap for home security. Ring Alarm Pro protects your entire home and the Wi-Fi it runs on. So it helps protect your home and your network. Now you can have a secure network and a crazy strong signal for all the devices across your home. And I know you've got a lot of devices. I got a lot of devices with a Ring Protect Pro subscription. It's an amazing deal, by the way. You get professional monitoring for the ultimate peace of mind. If anything happens, professional monitoring will call and can request emergency services. You may not know it, but it's true. Ring Alarm has an award-winning alarm system that has gone Pro with Ring Alarm Pro. To learn more, go to ring.com forward slash Clavin. That's ring.com forward slash Clavin. If anyone comes to your home, you just say to him, do you know how to spell Clavin? If he says, yes, I do, just call the cops. So I've written a, an Easter piece for the Daily Wire. I think you probably have to have a reader's pass uh, to get to it, but it's about something that has been on my mind since writing uh, The Truth and Beauty because it's been having a big effect on me personally, which is about... Um, about the role of Christianity on memory, and especially the role of Easter on memory. And uh, something genuinely dramatic uh, has happened to my interior life after writing uh, The Truth and Beauty. You know, after I was baptized, um, my wife said to me, about three weeks after I was baptized, my wife said to me, you know, you've totally changed. You've become far more uh, calm, far more joyful. And she actually said, almost the exact same thing to me uh, the other day. She says, you've actually gone to an, another place. I was talking to Larry O'Connor, uh, who has a great show here uh, on uh, WMAL. And uh, he, he said, when your wife says that to you, what she's really telling you is, oh, up until now, you've been a total pain in the neck. Uh, which is, I said to him, that's, that's pretty much the way I take it. But no, something genuinely revolutionary has happened to me through writing uh, The Truth and Beauty. And one of the reasons I think I wanted to write The Truth and Beauty was to lock that in in my own mind, but also pass it on. Um, there's this wonderful chapter, chapter 10, I think it is, in the Confessions of St. Uh, Augustine or Augustine. Uh, and obviously, the Confessions is one of the founding documents of Christian uh, theology. And in chapter 10, Augustine ponders memory. He ponders the nature of memory. And here's a little quote. He says, great is the power of memory, a fearful thing, oh my God, a deep and boundless manifoldness and this thing is the mind, and this am I, myself. In other words, memory, in some sense, is who we are. Our, our soul is a story, a story that's being told in our memory, which is the story of our lives. Now, as a thriller writer, I can tell you, we depend on this. We thriller writers depend on this a lot. I, we write amnesia thrillers. I have written several amnesia thrillers. Uh, the Animal Hour uh, was one for adults, and then there was The Homelanders uh, for kids. I Just uh, after backstage, uh, the guy who was doing the barbecue for us came up to me and said he had been a school teacher, and he said The Homelanders was one of the few books he could get his kids to read, which I loved hearing. Uh, but that's a story about a guy who has lost his memory. He does not know who he is. He doesn't know if he's the good guy or the bad guy, right? And this is the thing about amnesia stories is they are about people trying to find out not just what they remember, but, well, here's, a, here's one from my, one of my favorites, the, the Bourne Identity. The film of The Bourne Identity is one of my favorite thriller movies. I've actually dissected it and charted it out because I thought it was so well done, so 
perfectly written uh, that I just wanted to study the construction of it a little, a little bit. Uh, here is a scene which obviously it's Matt Damon with uh, Franca Patenta. Uh, he, he's lost his memory, but he knows he has these killer skills, these assassin's skills, and he doesn't know who he is, and this woman has been roped into helping him escape. And finally, he says, he knows people are after him, and finally he says to her, look, even if I get caught, you have to go to the police and keep yourself safe. And here's just a bit of that scene. You gotta go to the cops, right now. You gotta go before this gets any worse. Well, myself? It's gonna be okay. You're gonna take my passport, okay? You show this to them. You have that picture, you have the 20,000. You tell them everything that happened, everything. They're gonna believe you. They have to believe you. Marie, you can't just sit here. It's not safe here. Safe? This is from inside the embassy. Who can do this? I, I don't this know. This is from yesterday. How can they even know that we're together? Look, I'm just, I'm trying to do the right thing for you, okay? Just, right? I, that's what? all I'm trying How to do. How are you going to make this right by sending me there alone? You, you think I want you to go to the cops? You think that's good for you me? You want to go, fine. I, if you go to the cops, you I got to run. You don't tell them what happened. I don't know what happened. I don't know who this guy was. I don't know about that picture. I don't know who I am. That's the story of the amnesia thriller. I don't know who I am. But you notice something about this, and this is important when you're telling these stories and when you're creating these stories. You do it naturally, but it does have a ramification, which is that we see that Matt Damon is a good guy, not just because he's Matt Damon. Matt Damon could play the villain in a movie, but he's, he's playing a hero, and we know because he's sacrificing himself. He's saying, go to the cops. It'll keep you safe, even though it puts me in danger. Is this a good thing for me? So we know something about him right? He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know why he can kill people. He doesn't know why he's a dangerous person. Maybe he's a dangerous person in a bad way. But we know that there's some essential thing about Matt Damon that is good. There's a decency in him that he would sacrifice himself for this young woman. And, and that makes us like him and follow him as the hero. But it also means that he has something to go on. He is somebody he just doesn't remember who he is. And this memory constitutes a kind of conversation with himself, a part of his self-development. This is also played out in a, a wonder, I think it's Schwarzenegger's uh, second best movie next to Terminator, uh, was a Total Recall, which is based on a Philip K. Dick short story um, called We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. And Schwarzenegger is, plays a guy named Quaid. He's just a working guy. But one day he finds out that all his memories are implants and his wife is not his wife and his whole identity is, is a lie and he doesn't know who it is. And he winds up through the this wild story. He winds up on Mars and he finds a rebel group that is fighting the oppressors on Mars. And the rebel group has a leader. And the leader's name is Quato or Quato, I can't remember, uh, who's a mutant who lives inside the abdomen of his brother. He's hidden inside the abdomen of his brother. And when you want to talk to Quato, he has to kind of burst out of the abdomen of his brother. And he looks like a baby, even though he looks weird, he looks like a baby. It looks like a baby coming out of his brother's womb, essentially. Uh, and here's the scene where Quaid Schwarzenegger meets this rebel leader, who is also kind of a mystic, uh, you know, figure. What do you want, Mr. Quaid? The same as you, to remember. But why? To be myself again. You are what you do. A man is defined by his action, not his memory. Please, take my hand. Uh. 
your mind to me, please. Open your mind. <laughs> Open your mind. However, that, that's a really interesting exchange. First of all, this, this baby coming out of the belly of his brother is a symbol of like this child self, right? And we remember uh, that, that Jesus says, if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you have to become like a little child again, essentially saying there is this original you. There is this you who was made, this you who has a path, who is a path, I would say, that the person you were created to be is a path to the fulfillment of that person in the same way that a seed is a path to a tree or a flower or whatever it is to become, we are a path into ourselves. But in order to follow that path, he says, a man is defined by what he does, not by what he remembers. But in fact, you can't know yourself without your memory. You can't know what you did. If you did one thing yesterday, how do you know what you learned from that? You are you are not just a thing in that is static and stationary, you are moving through time. And so memory is the way that we keep track of this story that is being told in our lives. So that means something else, that something is really important. And this is the thing that I've been kind of wrestling with uh, in a good way. I think it's been a really positive experience since writing The Truth and Beauty, is that as you get new information, you essentially become different. Your past changes, right? This is something uh, in real, that happens in real life all the time. It can be very dramatic. It can be traumatic as well as uh, dramatic. If you say you were a soldier and say you lost a limb in war and then suddenly you realize that this war was fought for a corrupt reason or maybe even a, an evil reason. Maybe you were just a, an 18-year-old who went off to join the German army and fought for the Nazis and later you, you, know, you got hurt and injured and now you realize, oh my God, the Nazis were evil. I was 18. I didn't really realize it. Everything about you has changed. Everything about your self-perception has changed, which changes you. The other thing, I've, and I've seen this, I have witnessed this, is somebody, uh, a wife, say, will dedicate her life to her husband, and the husband will die, and then she'll find out going through his papers that he was untrue. He was consistently untrue. He was not at all who she thought she was. And people like this, and I again, I have talked to several people like this, they will say to you, my life is a lie. All my life is a lie. Uh, I'm not who I thought I was. And they have to start to, to rebuild the idea of who they are in their own mind. Their memory has changed with new information. But those are dramatic examples, but it's happening all the time. This is happening to you and to me all the time. Your sense of self is always changing. So let's say uh, you're working away, uh, but you're failing at everything. Everything you do uh, turns to garbage. You can't succeed at anything, and you keep trying, and you keep trying, and you think, oh, my, I'm a loser. And then one day you hit, and you're a success. And suddenly, that part of your life, which seemed like a loser's life, right, is suddenly the life of a guy who wouldn't quit, a guy who kept trying, a guy who you know, knew he had something, but he, suddenly you're a hero. Suddenly, you, know, you went from being a loser to being a hero because new information has come in that has changed your perception of yourself. You know, I've, I've talked many times about how I uh, met my wife. I picked her up hitchhiking, and she was hitchhiking, and I didn't have my car, so, and she was so beautiful, I thought, I have to get my car so I can pick up this babe, uh, this Amazon, as I called her in my mind, and I drove. I had to drive around the corner in a residential area 50 miles an hour uh, and, and picked her up. Now, that could have been a funny story about how I had a date or how I met a nice girl, and I just met this beautiful girl, but in fact, 40 years later, it's the story of how I met 
your mother, right? It's the story of how a new generation came into being. It's a big story. It's not a small story anymore. It's not a little meet-cute uh, story. It's actually a story of a new uh, a generation of life uh, being created and a love story that's lasted 40 years. That's a big story. And so where first it might have been a kind of like, I might have been a cocky, yeah, I picked this girl up hitchhiking. Now I'm sort of in awe. I'm sort of like, wow, this is a gift that was actually happening and something that was being done. Uh, you know, it, it was being done for me and, and to me uh, more than it was being done by me. So you're sitting in your car, which isn't moving, and you're saying to yourself, how come I have no social life? And the reason is, don't say rockauto.com. When you say rockauto.com, women come out of the woodwork. They just love the sound of those words spoken in that tone of voice because it means you know to get car parts at rockauto.com right online. You don't pretend to drive your car to an imaginary store where they don't know what they're doing and you're not even there because your car doesn't run because you don't have the parts you need. Rockauto.com is a family business. It's been serving auto part customers online for 20 years. You can go on and use their easy, easy to use catalog and get great prices. And they're always, the prices are always the same no matter who you are, unless you're Knowles. I think they they hike them for Knowles. But everybody else can get the same prices. RockAuto.com is the easy way to get parts for your car, and you get to say RockAuto.com, which just drives the women insane. Go to RockAuto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck, and write Clavin in there. How did you hear about us box? So they know I sent you. That's K-L-A-V-A-N, but you got to say it same way. K-L-A-V-A-N. So in my own life. The most dramatic version of this, the most dramatic example of this was after I wrote my memoir, uh, The Great Good Thing, which is a memoir of how I went from being a non-believer to being a Christian. And it's a long journey. It took 35, you know, 35 conscious years. I was uh, 49 when I was baptized. So it was a long, long, long journey. Um, and and I'm writing this book and I'm sort of thinking the the book is about me. I'm thinking it's about me figuring things out, about me having a commitment to making sense, that my life makes logical sense. But after it's over, I had this really weird experience where suddenly I realized that all through the book, and I didn't know this before, that Christ was always there. He was always working in the book, and it was it was hilariously obvious. So, for instance, there's a teacher mentioned in the book. I don't na name her in the book, but her name was Christ, and her it was spelled C-H-R-I-S-T. It was spelled Christ. Uh, there is a, a nurse in the book, and I do mention her name, and her name was Cristiano. And I remember when my wife was in distress in, in giving birth to our daughter, uh, she came in and comforted us, and it was a very dramatic thing. But the thing is, she walked into the room, and I said, I know you. And she said, yeah, I know you too. And we tried to work it out. We had never met. We had never met. And her name was Christiana. And this happens again and again. Virtually every voice that makes a difference in this book is either a Christian voice or a voice with a funny name that result, that uh, refers to Christ. And I started to say, oh, you know, this, was, this was done to me. I was, a, I was the object of this story. I wasn't the subject of the story. I was the object of, a, I was like a work of art. Uh, you know, uh, who's the, Galatea is the statue that was made by Pygmalion and he falls in love with her and she comes to life, right? Uh, and I was being brought to life. I was being, uh, I was being created in all of the difficulties of my somewhat difficult youth and, and certainly the difficulties of my uh, young manhood, which were very difficult indeed, a real journey into madness and pain, um, you know, I was being shaped 
Something was being done to me, and I started to see my life in a very, very different way. And over the months since I've written The Truth and Beauty, I started to say, oh, wait, I see my entire childhood differently. It wasn't something I was doing, and it wasn't something people were doing to me. It was there were all, there were all kinds of things that people did by their free will, but each one of those was being used by a greater hand to shape me and to give me a, a life that has been extraordinarily beautiful. Uh, that has changed my entire attitude toward my past. It's changed my entire sense of who I am. This is what happens to everybody, all of us, every Easter, if we buy in if we buy into this story. You know, Pope Benedict says on Good Friday, after Christ was crucified, he says the one sent by God was dead. There remained only a complete void. There was no longer any answer. This was complete despair. They saw their lives as a failure. They saw their movement as a failure. They saw their faith as a mistake. And suddenly, it wasn't. Suddenly, it wasn't. Suddenly, Jesus appeared to people. He had risen and it's a very strange story because people, even people who knew him well, like Mary Magdalene, would look right at him and didn't recognize him. It was as if their mind had to accept what was happening. It had to change their sense of who they were so dramatically that it took them a minute to do it. Thomas had to stick his finger in Jesus's wounds before he would believe. And the, the biggest story of this, I think, and the story with which I end the book, The Truth and Beauty, is the story of the road to a mouse uh, where these two brokenhearted disciples are walking along and suddenly a man is walking with them and they don't recognize them. And he begins to explain to him, he, the man who's walking with him, who is Jesus, he says, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. He rewrote the Old Testament. He redefined and reinterpreted the Jewish scriptures to make people understand that they pointed to him. And in accepting that, you've accepted that all your memories, everything you knew, not just in your own mind, but all of history from creation on, was different than what you thought it was. And you are different. You are not a failure. You are not deserted. You are not uh, an irredeemable sinner. You are loved. You are being shaped. The things that are happening to you that you can't understand, that are painful, the things that you have done that are, were mistakes, the things that you think you can never be forgiven for, you can be forgiven for. It changes who all of us are. It changes who every, each one of us is. I had the experience of discovering that God had walked beside me my whole life, and I hadn't seen him there. And that has changed my life in these last, uh, it's, I guess, a year since I wrote this book, The Truth and Beauty. This happens, I think, to all of us every Easter. It is offered to us every Easter on Good Friday. We are living in that darkness when we think we're walking alone. We think we are alone. We're not. Easter comes, and we should remember on Easter who we are. So those of you who watch the show on video sometimes see the flames coming up behind me and the table falling over, my computer spilling on the floor, the microphone dropping, and you're saying to yourself, you clearly didn't hire your staff through ZipRecruiter, and you're right, and I regret it every day because ZipRecruiter has AI, and that AI is always learning, getting better and faster at finding the right candidates for all of the jobs you want to fill. Right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. ZipRecruiter uses its powerful technology to find and match the right candidates for the, your job. Then it proactively presents these candidates to you. You can easily review these recommended candidates and invite your top 
top choices to apply for your job, which encourages them to apply faster. No wonder ZipRecruiter is the number one rated hiring site in the U.S. And now you can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. It's ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire, but I am not the smartest hirer. However, you do have to know how to spell my name to get ZipRecruiter for free. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no E's in Clavin. There are no E's in So you all know that The Daily Wire is intent on changing the culture, which I find incredibly gratifying, and that is why we are trying to change it in every way we possibly can. We've started our own publishing wing now called DW Books, and we're proud to publish books that actively fight the left's monopoly on storytelling. We've got a new one called Fiery But Mostly Peaceful, The 2020 Riots and the Gaslighting of America by Julio Rosas. He pulls back the curtain on the Black Lives Matter riots that broke out across the country in the aftermath of George Floyd's death. Rosas, who is reporting from the ground, gives his firsthand experience and exposes the media's attempts to convince Americans that the fatal and destructive riots were peaceful. Here's the trailer. The media gaslit the American people for all of 2020 as the riots unfolded. They did not give you the full story. I was there. George Floyd, Kyle Rittenhouse, Rayshard Books, Chaz in Seattle. I saw all the riots with my own eyes. Windshields being smashed, giant rocks that were being thrown, businesses that were starting to be looted. The crowd started to become hostile. All the cops were trapped and surrounded. Police were being ordered to to retreat. I experienced the, the tear gas. I experienced the smoke. This was very real to me. The mainstream media, they were trying to call them protests. CNN with that Chiron saying fiery but mostly peaceful. They're trying to push a narrative of don't believe your lying eyes because they were trying to appease that very dedicated Antifa movement that's there. When you read my book, Fiery But Mostly Peaceful, you will get the full story. You will learn what actually happened during the riots of 2020 and what the media did not want to tell you. Buy my book, Fiery But Mostly Peaceful, everywhere books are sold. (laughs) You know, at this point, it should not surprise me that we have a media that is trying to crucify the truth instead of tell the truth and that we have to do their job for them. But we will. The book is available for pre-order on Amazon, anywhere you buy books online. So go and pre-order your copy today. So, you know, for uh, several weeks, I've been ranting about this thing of in our schools with people teaching. It drives, it, it drives me crazy. People teaching this racist, uh, critical race theory, telling little children about their sex lives and how they're not the gender they think they are. There is a documentary called Whose Children Are They? I was watching this. Luckily, with in my office with the door closed because I was sitting there sobbing like a child. And this was made. This was made by one of my favorite people, Deborah Flora. We are veterans of the Hollywood Wars together. But Deborah is also the president and founder of Parents United America. Uh, she has advocated for parental rights, educational freedom, helped flip school boards, pushed for curriculum transparency legislation. And now she is uh, one of the producers and writers uh, with her husband, Jonathan Flora, a very talented filmmaker who has made other films as well. Uh, and she has made this film, Whose Children Are They?, uh, which opened in America's, uh, which premiered in theaters nationwide. Deborah, it's great to see you. How are you? Great to be with you, Andrew. Thank you so much. Good to reconnect, my friend. As you yes, said, you both escaped Hollywood. Yay! <laughs> I know. I know. I, I, I never. I never see my friends anymore. I just interview them. That's how. That's how. <laughs> well, good to see you here. That, that counts. <laughs> so, so is this? Is this? Um, uh, 
picture available? Whose children are they available to people? It is. It is. Thank okay. you for asking. Always the question for a filmmaker. It yeah. actually today is available on Salem Now. And it did premiere nationwide March 14th. It was in over 760 theaters nationwide. Wow. It's been about 600 more screenings in theaters. And now it goes to streaming. And people can find out at whosechildrenarethey.com. And our hope is for a very long life for this movie. It'll go to DVD after that and all the subscription services. But um, our goal in making this was to put a tool into the hands of every parent, grandparent, and concerned citizen. So this has a long life until we reclaim education over indoctrination. That's what we have to do. Well, I have to tell you, it's a, it's, it's a very moving doc because it's children, you know, and I all we ever used to hear from the left is, what about the children? What about the children? And it turns out they don't care about the children whatsoever. <laughs> so I kept asking. <laughs> yeah. So, so how, did you, how did you get involved in this to begin with? Yes. Well, it, the way I got really involved is, you know, I've been involved on on issues that matter in our rights. But about three and a half years ago, I'm actually from Colorado. I'm not from California. Grew up here, but we moved back and, and we have kids. I'm a mom. You know, I think it's going to be moms and dads who get their dander up. They're going to save our kids and they're going to save our country ultimately. But about three and a half years ago, they pushed comprehensive sex ed through on the very last day of the legislature in Colorado. I knew what was in it because I'd seen it in, Col in California. I knew how eight inappropriate and exploitative it was of children. So when I stood up, I was one of, one of hundreds of parents that stood up and they pushed it through anyway. Then I introduced sex ed curriculum transparency along with the legislate, legislator here. They sent that to the kill committee and I thought, you know what? What we have to do is really take this grassroots movement and get it to the tipping point. And you're, you're a student of history, Andrew. So many movements either reach a peak and then die off, or they reach a peak and they have real change. And unfortunately, that's the rare exception. But we thought if we can actually help connect the dots for parents, grandparents, concerned citizens, it's not just sex education. It's not just gender fluidity in kindergarten. It's not just CRT. It's not just anti-discipline discipline policy. It is all of these things together with a through line of a culprit who really are the teachers unions for the most part and their agenda that, like you said, has nothing to do with the good of children. We felt that if we could do that and put this in the hands of good people who care and have common sense and want to protect children, we can make sure that movement peaks and leads to real change instead of dissipating. Can you talk about this a little more about the teachers unions? Because I get letters every time I rant about this and I can't, I can't help it because it makes my eyeballs roll around in my head. The, the, <laughs> absolute, <too>. the absolute <laughs> indifference to the health of children, the mental health of yeah. children. Uh, I, I keep getting letters saying, don't forget where there are many teachers out here who are opposed to this, we're working hard, but we're afraid, we're afraid yes. to talk about it. What, what role, how, how is the teachers union pulling this off? Well, teachers unions don't represent teachers. I mean, we're pro-teacher. We're pro-good teacher who's right. not been indoctrinated in the teaching colleges, which some of them have been, unfortunately, but many have not. But the way the teachers union works, unfortunately, like a lot of unions, it's a thug tactic. And you just have to, you know, in the movie, you see that John Dewey, who's the father of modern education, the honorary president of the teachers unions, he was a Marxist. He, he appreciated the Soviet style of education and everything was not for the good of, of the students. It was for the control of the message and the education of the next generation for their purposes. And then the way they control teachers is they bully them. And they literally say, if you want to teach, you have to be become a member of the union and they scare them by saying it's the only way you'll have protection, et cetera. It's all a big lie, really, because teachers can have insurance and protection and 
with organizations that don't tell them what they have to teach. I mean, there's a famous quote that we have in the movie, a clip of one of the heads of the teachers union saying, you know, basically when students pay dues, we'll represent the students. And Mm -hmm. all that they have done is grown their power and grown their power. And when you see the teachers have only gone up, let's say 8% to 7%, these are approximate statistics, they're in the movie. But the flood of the bureaucracy in our schools has gone up 74% for administrators, 24% for janitors, 45% for principals. The whole point of the teachers unions is to have as much money as they can, as many people in the building so that they can control. And they also control by flipping school boards. You know, they, they fund school board candidates that they want who will simply carry out the teachers union agenda. And all we have to do, Andrew, is look at the plummeting academic scores and the, you know, skyrocketing mental issues that our children are having to know it's not for the good of the students. It's actually the only thing that the only group that is benefiting here are the teachers unions. They, you know, of Randy Weingarten makes over half a million dollars a year when teachers' salaries are stagnating or dropping. So we're pro-teacher, pro-parent, pro-student, which was the original golden triangle of education. And who got in the middle of it and blew it up was the teachers' unions. That's really interesting and, and a little scary. Talking to Deborah Flora about her film, Whose Children Are They? A very powerful documentary. Uh, talk a little bit about some of these children. I'm watching these children telling their stories. Um, some of the experiences they had, which are mind-boggling. I mean, it's yes. just mind-boggling that, that uh, the authorities, these parents are up against authorities who are supposed to be helping them and, and raise their kids. One girl I remember was taken off to a, finally found a school that actually helped her, which was a charter school, which was then destroyed. I mean, yes. is that part of that? I mean, that's something that Obama did. He destroyed that movement. Um, how is that happening? Well, the movement has to be towards educational freedom and educational freedom involves many different options. I, we have two children and just with two children, different schools fit them. One of our children is in a charter school. The other one is in a public school and it fits them. Any parent knows that Every child is different. They're not cookie cutter in the same exact situation. So children flourish when there are options that benefit them. In addition, you know, the money, let's say, following the student, not the system, who does that benefit the most? Underprivileged minority inner city kids where their parents can't afford to drive them all over or fight for a private school or et cetera. So who is the only organization that would want there not to be choices? The teachers unions who want a monopoly, who want to have everything under their control. So it's not just Obama. It's pretty much any democratically run regime. I mean, most Democrats are funded by two organizations. They're Planned Parenthood and they are the teachers unions and they're beholden to them. That's why they push against these policies. And it's being revealed now. I mean, the the absolute hypocrisy of the left who say, you know, we are for minority children, inner city students, but they have them locked into failing schools. There's another woman we have in the documentary, um, a woman named Kelly Williams Bolar, single black mom in Ohio whose twin daughters were in a dangerous school. She simply signed them up under her father's address, which was just a couple of miles away to get them into a safe school. She was sent to jail and made an example of. So when you see that, you realize once and for all, who's really for the students? Who's really for the underprivileged parents who need help? And who is for the power structure that keeps students locked into failing schools? So there's, it, it's, it's hard to watch. But the reality is there's so much we can do. All we have to do is ask, you know, a school board candidate, 
are you taking money from the teachers unions? Then you're not for us. You are actually mm. for the teachers union. You can hire and hire at the polls, elect legislators who will stand up for educational freedom, the money following the student, not the system, which allows the grace ability for everyone to flourish. And there's so much we can do. Finally, parents are awake. And my, our hope with this document is they will never ever go to sleep again. And they woke up under COVID because they saw what was really going on. Now, I know that's kind of the funny thing about it. They, they sat at yes. home. You said in the, in the documentary that they were told not to watch. Yes. There is a school <laughs> district in Tennessee yeah. that we point out. And by the way, you know, everything in this documentary, one of my jobs as the producers, we had three teams of lawyers. Everything is verifiable. Everything is locked down. We did not want to in any way negate the arguments that we have here by having just even one claim that wasn't true. Everything has been locked down. In Tennessee, they wanted parents to sign a waiver saying, we will not observe what our children are learning online in your kitchen, for goodness sake, or or your living room. And of course that begs the question, why? You know, <laughs> uh, what are you hiding? And people began to find out what they were hiding. I mean, you mentioned CRT. CRT, let's just call us call it what it is. First of all, it's neo-Marxism because it's just Marx's critical theory with a new wrapper on it. And critical theory simply divides people into groups and pits them against each other, which is what they're trying to do with students. And it's neo-racism. Because what it is doing is telling children to judge themselves by their by their skin color. You know, our CRT portion, we've interviewed, by the way, over 120 people, parents, teachers, experts, students all over America. And our CRT portion was primarily filmed in Minneapolis or in Minnesota, right outside where George Floyd, um, where that incident happened. And these are black parents saying you will not tell our children that they're victims and that they can't learn. So you're eliminating honors classes. That's racism, yeah. plain and yeah, simple. It's, it's, ama it's amazing how much of this stuff is supported by elite white people uh, against the will of ordinary yes. run-of-the-mill rank-and-file black people, just black citizens of this country. Mm -hmm. uh, talk for a minute about the, the, the sexual teachings because you know, I, I'm, I've always been very tolerant of people's private lives. I don't want to interfere with what they're doing and where they get their joy if they're not hurting anybody. Uh, and, and so they, they kind of use that. They use that yes. natural American tolerance of difference to sell something that I feel is enormously destructive. What, mm -hmm. what have you personally seen or, or seen through this film uh, that is happening to children on that front? You make a great distinction because, you know, Andrew, a lot of people are going to say, oh, this is anti-LGBTQ. Far from it. If you're an adult, you are free to live your life however you want to. But anyone, I think, can understand that children kindergarten through third grade. And by the way, sex education is now in third or fourth grade, which it should not be. It should be in, in junior high. But when you have children who are four or five years old who are being told that they could have a boy brain trapped in a girl body or vice versa, there's something that happens when you're under eight years old. It's called concrete thinking. You know, they, they believe whatever you tell them. That's why Easter Bunny the magic of Santa Claus, all of this, you tell them it's true. They don't have abstract thinking yet where they can say, well, maybe that's true for Billy, but it's not true for me. That is intentional. So the fact is I've talked to a lot of, you know, members of the LGBT community who are not for indoctrinating young school children about this. It's one thing if you're an adult and you're living your life, but they understand that 
kids who are K through through third grade, honestly, they should be going learning to be potty trained, learning to color, learning to read, learning to be socialized. And the argument, the straw man argument that this is so that there is no bullying holds no water. All you have to do is say, look, you know, um, Saeed is Sikh. He wears a turban. Don't bully him. You know, Susie is Catholic. She's ashes on her forehead on, you know, on Ash Wednesday. Don't give her a hard time. Um, Tommy is now Mary. Just be kind to Mary. That's all you have to say if you do think that a child as young as kindergarten can be transgendered. That's up to you and the parents, et cetera. But the idea that you are telling children that they could overnight become a boy or a girl is damaging. We have a story in uh, the documentary of Rockland Academy that was in California. And this was told to kindergartners without their parents' knowledge. So they weren't even there to help support them. And one little girl went home. Her mom had no idea that in kindergarten, she was told she could eventually be a boy. She took a bath. Her hair was slicked back. She looked in the mirror and she started just shaking uncontrollably. And her mom just had no idea what was happening and said, what's going on? She goes, mommy, I just turned into a boy and I didn't want to. Her mom didn't even know that this had been taught. And when you teach that to a child, they have no ability. So you have to ask yourself if your if your goal is to stop bullying, then do it by teaching kindness. But they've even said it's time to move beyond kindness. What do they move beyond kindness to? Indoctrination. And that, that is not okay. Yeah, no, it's, it's really sickening. I, you, you live in a state that just passed, as I understand it, a law that allows abortion, I think, up until the age of like 15 or something. They can, yeah, they, right. You can like shoot your teenager if, it, you know. Very dystopian. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what hope do you have in a state like that? Is there a disconnect between yes. your leaders and the parents? There is, you know, this is our opportunity. I'm actually optimistic in a way, Andrew. You know, it's funny. Somebody said, are you excited for the review, you know, for the documentary to be released? I'm like, no, it's like inviting your friends over and saying, I've got bad news for you. I mean, you know, that's really it. But the reality is we have to see it. The reason why all this stuff has happened is because it's been in the dark. Parents are busy. I mean, they're they're working a job. They're picking up their kids or taking them to sports. They don't, they, they trusted the school system to be as the school system was for them, you know, and, and what happened with the abortion situation, which is extreme, this is our opportunity to point out how progressive policies taken to their very extreme become regressive. They become neo-racism. They become neo-sexism in the case of erasing Title IX and girls' sports. They become exactly what they said they were not meant to be, which is hurting the very people that they had purported to stand up for. But this is our time. We have to drag it into the light. And the vast majority of people, I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican, you're a mom and a dad first. And I think this is the overplay of the hand of those who really do want to introduce Marxist you know, agendas, want to take over the oligarchy elite, want to tell everybody else how to be. And when it comes to the abortion situation, most pro-choice people who call themselves that are not for abortion after the first trimester. This extreme puts us in the category of North Korea, Vietnam, and China that has forced abortion. I mean, really, we don't force abortion here. I'm not saying that. But this is out of step with the vast majority of Americans who are common sense, decent, 
people who understand this is way too far. And the reason why we are hoping that this documentary takes off like wildfire, you wake people up about what they care about most, which is their kids. They will never go back to sleep again. And they'll realize that this is a politicization and an exploitation of the most vulnerable and innocent amongst us. And I think uh, that brings optimism to me. We're seeing a revolution and a renaissance of the American citizens starting at the school boards. And we need that to continue. The film is called Whose Children Are They? Deborah Flora, uh, one of the producers and uh, a writer. You know, you and I were members of the se semi-secret organization uh, in <laughs> not Hollywood. Not the best-kept secret like Fight Club. This was not the best-kept secret. <laughs> it was one of the worst-kept secrets ever. Uh, and, and we've both gotten out of L.A., and the stories that I'm hearing from L.A. are just yes. awful. Uh, the stories, you know, just humiliating, degrading stories uh, where black people are being put on films. They don't have to do anything, but they get a credit to, to run cover uh, for the white creatives who are doing the work. And, I, you know, I, I just think that that's such a nasty thing to do to the black guy, yes. let alone the white guy. You know, it's just, it's just a horrible, racist thing to do. But when you look at the culture right now, and we are in this horrible Biden moment, uh, are you optimistic? Are you optimistic? I mean, we we fought a fight where, where no one was listening. And now it seems to me that people yes. are listening about the culture. Uh, do you share that optimism? You know, I do for this reason. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to come down to those people who are now awake. What are they going to choose? Because this is our moment. And I do believe the vast majority of Americans, I think 80% of Americans, even more, probably want the same thing. They honestly just want to pursue their dreams, raise their families, provide for them, know their kids have a good education and a better future than they had and that they're safe. That's what they really want. And I think what has happened is those vast majority of people are waking up and realizing the fringe elements have left them far behind. And this has been a period of time where under, you know, what's happening in the schools and, and the, you know, the Democrat Party, which has now taken off its mask and has revealed itself to really be the Socialist Party. I think a lot of people are waking up saying, wow, I maybe, you know, thought, that they were had my back, but I realized they have left me. They've left my family. They've left really anything that we would call common sense. I believe we have this window in history and we need good people of goodwill to forget what yard sign they had in front of their yard last November and say, let's come together on the 80% that we, we share in common. And, you know, even Ronald Reagan said, you know, my 80% friend is not my 20% enemy. Yeah. Let's yeah. get back to where we disagree on like the minutia of bonds and tax policy, but let's get back to the most basic things of human dignity and freedom, which is Hey, if you're if you're an adult, live your life how you see fit. But we can all come together and agree that our children are not the political pawns and the indoctrination they're trying to do to to basically move the future of this country in a different way. If we come together now, we will look back at this crazy time as the time we stepped back from the precipice and we can do it. We just have to stand together. Deborah Flora, the uh, president and founder of Parents United America, the producer of Whose Children and writer of Whose Children Are They, a terrific documentary. It's one, and an all around great person. It's wonderful <laughs> to see you, Deborah. I, I hope well, to see you in person. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. And I do invite people to go to whosechildrenarethey.com. We want to make sure every person has this in their hands so they can convince others to join this movement. So Absolutely. thank you so much, Andrew. I really appreciate it. It's great to see you. Thanks. Me too. Thank you. All right, the Clavenless weekend is coming closer. The Clavenless week is coming closer. You're just going to have to somehow just get by with the resurrection of your Lord and Savior. 
which may that, that actually may carry you through, I, I got to say. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we will solve all your problems here with the mailbag. America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. I was going to put him in uh, foot, foot, excuse me. <laughs> Uh, that's a clip I actually hadn't heard until now. That is great. Uh, <laughs> we're so doomed. We're finished. Uh, <laughs> you know, you got to wonder if this is what's happening in public, what's happening behind the scenes when he's with the staff. All right. From Dallas, greeting sexy Gandalf and the enforcer of thou shalt not have ease in thy name. My wife and I have built a good life. Uh, for being in our mid-twenties, I'm a Nashville police officer and a Marine veteran. My wife is a drop-dead gorgeous lover of Christ and an ER nurse. Uh, she has the maternal instincts that would put a mother grizzly to shame, and she is a homemaker if God ever made one. We have two beautiful toddler daughters who are the light of our lives. But one thing just isn't right, and that is that I do not feel Christ in my soul, and I have not for years now. It has been eating me to my core for a while now, but the stakes have been raised ever since I've become a father. I feel wise enough and competent enough to raise level-headed, conservative-minded, humble daughters, but I feel that my lack of personal relationship with Christ is going to have me miss out on the most important lessons of all if I cannot convey the importance and the need for Jesus' love and acceptance. Uh, to them, then everything is for nothing. Why won't God answer my prayers to light the fire in me again? I look forward to your reply, and hopefully it does not end with you calling it a schmuck. It will not end with my calling you a schmuck. Love the show and the awesome content you produce. Uh, no, you're doing great. You're doing uh, terrific, and, and that's a wonderful thing. You know, you, what I thought about uh, when I'm reading this is I thought about M uh, Mother Teresa, who said that for the uh, last 20 years of her life, I think it was, uh, she, she had lost her faith. And she couldn't understand it, and she just kept pushing on. And then it came to her that she was having the experience that Christ had on Good Friday on the cross, that sense of desolation he felt when he cried out, oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, and she said she realized that all the time she thought she had been separated uh, from Christ, she was actually being brought closer to him in that moment of suffering. So, uh, you know, it, it, Jesus said, if, if you knock, the door will be open to you. And, and I am a big believer in praxis, which is the opposite of theory. Uh, praxis is practice as opposed to, to theory. And I, that is, I believe you, you should do things to get to the place internally that you want to be. I was talking about um, the kind of meditation I do on the Gospels. It has a Latin name that I keep forgetting every time I open my mouth. Le Lectio Divina, I think it is. Um, but the prayer, the, the kind of prayer that I always recommend, which is going someplace where you're alone, speaking out loud to God. I know it can feel funny at first, but if you speak out loud to God, you don't, your, your thoughts don't trail off into nothing uh, and you're focused and so you can say what you have to say. Obviously, God knows what you have to say, but that communication can be brought to your consciousness fully. You have to take time. You have to take time with God, you know, and talk to him and, and let him know, uh, not just please connect with me, but, you know, actually connect with him. The, the, the cool thing about God is that he's like Brazil. It's like, even if you don't believe in him, he's there. He doesn't need you to believe in him to exist. A lot of people say that I've lost my faith in God as if somehow that's going to hurt God. No, it's just your problem connecting. So, I, you know, the only thing I would recommend to you is like God, God is taking you through something. And I think that uh, if you talk to him about it, uh, it, it will it will come back. And in the meantime, maybe this this 
sense that the fire has gone out and he was telling you something that you need to know, is giving you an experience that you need to have. Um, and, and I think that once you have the faith that he's not gone, doesn't matter what you were feeling, he's not gone, then you can talk to him whether you're feeling it or not. And you will find, I think, that um, a lot of those emotional facets uh, will come back and will arise when when God feels that that's the right thing to do. From Rich, uh, Mr. Clavin, what is your take on Catholicism and Judaism? As a Catholic, I know Jesus was a Jew. He was born as the king of the Jews. Also, I understand that Jews generally don't see Jesus as the son of God. Uh, Catholicism developed out of Judaism on the understanding that Jesus is the son of God. So why doesn't Catholicism have more in common with Judaism besides the Jesus issue? It seems to me that we diverge based on this fundamental concept. Catholics still use the Old Testament as the foundation of our teachings and beliefs. Yes, very, very much so. I mean, the, the reading of the Old Testament, as I said, on the road to Emmaus, uh, Jesus revealed that the Old Testament was a prophecy of him. And sometimes people get very frustrated uh, with Jews and they say, well, why don't you see it? Uh, But that's because they have a different religion in which that faith uh, in Jesus isn't established and they don't feel it. And I I sometimes feel both Jews and Christians get angry at me when I say this, but I don't care because I think it may be true. Um, It's a speculation uh, that, that Jews are actually, you know, God doesn't abandon his people. He doesn't say, oh, yeah, you're my people. Nah, yeah, I changed my mind. That's not the way it works. And so all the anti-Semitism that has grown out of uh, Christian Christian uh, replacement uh, theology where they say, oh, it used to be the Jews were the chosen people. Now we are the chosen people. No, that's not going to hold together at all. Uh, and it's not going to hold together if you carry it out in hatred uh, because you're <laughs> going to get a big surprise when you meet your Jew- Jewish savior. Um you know, I sometimes feel that, that Jews are the part of the body of Christ that doubts. And doubt is an important part of faith. Uh, doubt makes you question your prejudices. It makes you question hardened uh, theological ideas that may need to be revisited from time to time. Jesus is a living person, and you are a living person. That means growth and change and, and fresh understanding. And I think that uh, it, it bringing in your own imagination, your own mind, bringing Jews into the body of Christ is a very helpful way of remembering uh, that this is the father of your religion, this is the the mothership of your religion, as it were, and where Jesus Jesus lived and died, a believing Jew. And, and so it's very important. Now, when you talk about Catholicism uh, having differences, the differences are the one essential difference is that they see the source of our faith being in, in Christ, in the God that we can see, not the God that we can never see, that this God uh, uh, develops, d- delivers God into us in a, in a human way that we can understand. But so much of the of the uh, ethics, so much of the history, so much of the attitude toward God, even the uh, you know, monotheism is is Jewish, and so there's a lot of connections. Uh, and I think in in many many ways we are more alike uh, than than different. And I just think that extending your heart, you know, a lot of times people think, well, you're supposed to believe in the name of Jesus, but Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord? But you don't do what I tell you to do. I've known a lot of people who weren't Christians who were, and I think that God knows those people just the same as He knows you and me. Uh, and it, it's not so much about saying Jesus, 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 understanding uh, what He was telling you to do and how he was telling you to live. So I don't think that um, I don't think the difference is that big. And I think that on when Passover and Good Friday come on the same day, we remember uh, that in fact the Last Supper was a Passover meal. Uh, that Jesus is 
frequently in the Mass, they say, Jesus, our Passover, Jesus, our uh, Passover sacrifice. Uh, he, the Passover is seen from a Christian perspective as being the um, symbol of the coming sacrifice of the Lamb that brings freedom. It brought freedom to the Jews after the Passover in Egypt. It brings freedom uh, to Christians from a life steeped in error and sin, if you will. So I, I don't know. The connection is very deep, very alive, uh, and very um, inspiring if you treat it with love and you treat it with the acceptance that I'm sure, I have no doubt in my mind, is that is how Jesus would feel about the Jews, even those Jews who don't accept him uh, as, as who we very deeply believe he was. I mean, I don't think... Uh, I don't, I don't think faith is a game show, you know, where like you guess the name of God and, and the lights go on and you win a trip to heaven and a free car. You know, I don't think that's how it works. I think it is a very, very deep interchange uh, with God. And, uh, you know, sometimes I think that maybe Christians, uh, we, we get to the Father through the Son. Maybe the Jews just get to dial direct. <laughs> I don't know how it works, but I do not believe that they have been, ex, you know, excommunicated or thrown out of the promise that God made to him. God just does not work that way. So the connection remains, and the connection should be there in our love for one another, uh, certainly, and for our listening to one another and listening to the different ways that we approach God, uh, as well as the connections. That's all I got to say. I hope you have a wonderful Easter. I hope you have a wonderful Passover. Uh, it will get you through the Clavenless weekend, I, I suspect. But if, if, you know, you should be crushed, just crawl your way to next Friday and we'll be back with The Andrew Claven Show. I'm Andrew Claven. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, remember to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thank you for listening. The Andrew Claven Show is produced by Lisa Bacon, executive producer Jeremy Boring, our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Production manager, Pavel Wadowski. Editor and associate producer, Danny D'Amico. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. Our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. And our production assistant is Jacob Falash. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. Today on The Ben Shapiro Show, Elon Musk offers to buy Twitter and the left goes completely insane. Plus, with Joe Biden's support collapsing, the White House doubles down on equity and the media jump all over a white cop black offender shooting, but ignore the fact. As always, that's today on The Ben Shapiro Show. Give it a listen. Mm-hmm.